Good morning, brethren. If you would, please accompany me to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. And uh, I will read from the text here. Now in the church that was at Antioch is verse one. There were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Sorry, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and and laid hands on them, they sent them away. We will be looking at this morning at this text and also at the text that we read previously, Acts 11, that also talks about the church of Antioch. And before I begin, I I, I just want to, I would like for us to pray again. I, I just feel like I need the Lord's extra grace um, right now. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I appreciate, Lord, my, my brother's prayer right now and I also come before you and I ask that your hand would be upon me and upon us as we hear your word. Help us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last year, I had preached a message from Acts chapter 9. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, it was a message about this uh, godly man that tends to get overshadowed by the Apostle Paul and the the story of the salvation of Paul, uh, Ananias. And my sermon was titled, An Exemplary Servant. Well, today I'd like to focus on this congregation here of Antioch, and my sermon is titled, An Exemplary Exemplary Church. And this is a church that, like Ananias, doesn't normally receive that much attention, at least when we're talking about the church. I know this uh, this passage is brought up uh, sometimes by, by preachers when they're talking about missions and all that. Uh, but I, I don't just want to focus on missions right now. Uh, I, I want us, for us to look at this church as a whole. And so we're going to we're going to be looking at this exemplary church. And I know that that seems like a rather boring title, um, but that's only because uh, the longer, more adequate title uh, would obviously be too long to fit into uh, our bulletin. Uh, But if I could give this a, a better title, it would be an extraordinary, world changing, scripture saturated, Christ centered, God exalting, Holy Spirit empowered, grace filled, servant led, missions minded, spiritually awake church. Because that is what we see in the text. We can learn a lot about what God desires of us as a congregation, as a church, from Acts 13 and from Acts 11. And the passage that I've just read right now in Acts 13 describes a critical moment in the redemptive history of God's people, in redemptive history as a whole. 
There's, it's a critical moment here. This is a radical, earth-shattering breakthrough for missions. The Church of Antioch launches the most powerful and explosive missionary endeavor in history. One that would spread Christianity across the whole Roman Empire. And one that would lead eventually to Christians and churches being established in the entire world. This missionary journey that begins here with Paul and Barnabas uh, results ends up resulting in many churches planted, many salvations, and results in, in, in other missionary journeys, more churches planted, and believers that in like manner planted other churches. So we have believers being saved and they're planting other churches and these are planting other churches and it eventually leads to billions of people being saved, coming to faith. And it all started here in Acts 13. This is the catalyst for world missions. We are still feeling the effects of this missionary enterprise today. So this is no insignificant text. This is a monumental episode in the history of redemption. And there is much that can be said regarding missions from this from this passage. But as I mentioned, I, I want us to focus on, on this church as a whole and the, the local church behind this extraordinary endeavor. What did they look like? What were they like? What was that dynamic in the church? What was the, their life like? What, what can we learn from them? How can this teach us about the church that God desires? So what we're simply going to do is just go through the passages of Acts 11 that we've read and, and this passage in Acts 13. And we're going to see what God has to say. So... If you would turn with me to Acts 11. The teaching in both passages can be summed up into five points or five broad categories with respect to this church in Antioch. First, its beginnings. Secondly, its growth. Third, its Christ-likeness. Fourth, its leadership. And fifth, its spiritual life. Those are, those are the points that I'm going to bring. Those are the broad categories that we see in these texts So let's focus on on the first one right now, its beginnings. Antioch was a church that was birthed out of persecution. If you read the book of Acts, you see that in Acts 7, there's this amazing man, godly man, spirit-filled man. His name is Stephen. And he preaches to the Jews. He is a Greek-speaking Jew. And he indicts the Jews in this long sermon. Remember, if God includes a long passage of scripture. There's a long account. It's for a good reason. This is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. And the Jews are indicted here. And Stephen demonstrates how God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He, He cannot be limited to one specific localized place. God is through with that. That was an old, uh, uh, old covenant thing. God's presence is in the whole world and his special presence is spreading into the whole world. But after he preaches this, his hearers are so angry, and especially after he sees Christ, that they kill him. So he becomes the first martyr. 
And his death results in a massive persecution against the church. And it results in Jews, mainly Greek-speaking Jews, being dispersed, being scattered. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, the, the people of God, Israel, was dispersed. They were scattered because of their sin. But here, they are, are scattered as a result of their obedience. And so they are dispersed. And it's also, by the way, kind of God giving them a nudge to go out into the world, to go out into the nations. And in Acts chapter 8, we see that this dispersion leads to the salvation of the Samaritans through Philip and also this Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. And then there's a break in the narrative. Luke, the author, shifts focus to talk about the conversion of Saul, this main persecutor of the church. And then he talks a little bit about Peter and about Peter and the salvation of these Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. So there is a break in the narrative, but we see clearly that the door of salvation has been opened to the Gentiles. Gentiles are being received into the kingdom of God. And then we get to the latter half of Acts 11 and we come here to our, our text. And all these stories are masterfully woven together by Luke, the author of Acts. You see, these aren't just some random stories that Luke is including. We had a break in the narrative for a reason. This topic of persecution, of the salvation of Saul, and of the Gentiles being saved are united and brought together in this story of the church of Antioch. So we see in verse 19... Now those who were, who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So some are escaped, that are escaping persecution travel as far north as Phoenicia, which is modern day Lebanon, and some to Cyprus, which is an island on the Mediterranean, uh, 60 miles off the coast of modern Syria. And others are traveling to Antioch. And Antioch was located in a Roman province called Syria at that time. Uh, Antioch now is in modern day Turkey. It's 350 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was the third largest city in the Roman world. And the population could have been as high as half a million people. And it was a multicultural city. There were Greeks. There were Arabs. There were some Jews there. There were other nations that were represented there. Eastern and Western cultures intersected in the city. And it was also a city full of paganism. Rampant paganism, rampant corruption, debauchery, immorality. So much so that the Romans themselves would even complain. They, they, they complained that, that Antioch was having a bad influence upon Rome. They would complain about the licentiousness of the city. This, this city was like a pagan Las Vegas. And from this deep darkness, the light of the gospel shone brightly. So we see here at first, the believers would only preach to the Jews. They would go to the local synagogues. You know, in every place there was a synagogue or almost every place in the Roman Empire. There was synagogues. Jews were there. 
They would get together to worship. And so these believers went to the synagogues and then shared Christ with those Jews in the synagogues and also with you know the, those proselytes to Judaism and the God-fearers who would attend the synagogues. But at this moment in, in history, they couldn't conceive of a Gentile salvation. The Jews still maintained, the Jewish believers rather, still maintained a mentality of separation. It was unlawful. They saw it as unlawful to have company with Gentiles. As we see, Peter himself admits in Acts 10, 28. So they are only going to the Jews. But we see in verse 20. But some of them were, were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of them, they were from Cyprus and they were also from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. They went to Antioch and they not only spoke to the Jews, they also spoke to the Hellenists. So now this term Hellenist is referring to the Greeks, literally means Greeks. And this term was used previously in Acts to talk about the Greek speaking Jews, the Jews of the diaspora, the dispersion. But here it's referring to specifically Greek speaking Greeks. So these are full-on pagans. They are full-on Gentiles with no connection to Moses. And they engage with them. They share with them about the Lord Jesus, namely the Lordship of Jesus Christ, how and why He is Lord. And we don't know if this episode happened or took place chronologically after the salvation of Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 or if they were happening simultaneously, these are parallel things that were happening at the same time, I tend to lean on that explanation. These were happening at the same time, and these believers hadn't heard about Peter, you know, Peter's uh, encounter with Cornelius and those of his household. They were being led of the Lord, and they preached to the, these Gentiles. And they did something that was that would be considered completely mind-blowing to the to a Jewish audience. Something that was unheard of. They're going to Gentiles and they're preaching to Gentiles about a Jewish Messiah. But the Lord blessed it. In verse 21, we see, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Hand of the Lord, that's a loaded Old Testament term and concept. That's referring to the presence and the power and the favor of God being upon His people. The hand of the Lord was with them. The the key to their success was the Lord. And the reason of their success, the reason why many people turned to the Lord, many were saved, was because God was with them. It was because they not only were they pleasing to God in what they were doing, They were being led of the Lord. And they were being led to preach to these Gentiles. Jesus Christ wanted these Gentiles being saved, to be saved. And this in and of itself is monumental, brethren. This is the first ever predominantly Gentile church plant. This had was unseen, had not been seen anywhere. As one pastor says, this was bigger than Hudson Taylor going to China. 
This was bigger than David Livingston going to Africa. This was bigger than William Carey going to India. This was 10.0 on the missionary Richter scale. And you know what's interesting? We don't even have the names of these believers. They are unknown. They were not apostles. They were unknown disciples. And who they are is ultimately not important. What's important is that the Lord was with them. The Lord is doing this. So we see here that Antioch was birthed out of suffering. It was birthed out of persecution. It was because of this persecution that the believers were scattered and then they preached to these Gentiles. These believers were no strangers to suffering. And you know, that's what their hearers would have, would have heard from them. That's what the, the Gentile audience would have heard from these believers. Jesus Christ suffered and died for sinners, including Gentiles. He died for the sins of the world. As some other New Testament authors uh, say, He died to redeem people from the world, not only from the Jews. They would have heard that. And they would have heard about the suffering of Christ. And they would have heard that if you also believe in Christ, you too will suffer. We are escaping persecution. And you know what? You believe in Christ, you too will be persecuted. You can, we can guarantee that. And this is not an attractive message. This is not your best life now. And yet they embraced it. And many people embraced this message. You're going to die. If you embrace Christ, you are embracing death. Death to self and perhaps death through martyrdom. Death by being persecuted. And yet they did embrace this message. It's because the Lord was behind it. Sometimes we're afraid that, you know, we're going to offend this person or they're not going to want to hear it. But if the Lord is behind it, they, they will want to hear it. And we are to preach the truth. So this church didn't start as a comfortable church. This is not comfortable Christianity. This is persecuted, suffering Christianity. And this church was started by an unidentified ragtag band of bold, zealous risk-takers. They were unconventional. They did something unprecedented. They were not afraid to go outside the box. And brethren, I would submit to you that we need those type of people in our church. We can learn about the church. We can, we, we can learn what God desires of the church and what, what is good for the church from this text. We, we need those risk takers. We need those in the church. We need people with zeal. You might say, well, you gotta be careful that your zeal, you know, you're not a bull in a china shop and your zeal is not tempered by, you know, graciousness and, you know, patience. And love, of course, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying you have to be a bull in the china shop, but zeal is not a bad thing. And risk taking is not a bad thing. But of course, those risk takers will be criticized. They will be criticized. They've always been criticized. Those who have wanted to go to the mission field, those who have taken so many risks, risked their lives, they've always been criticized. Are you sure that's you're, you're doing, you're not doing something imprudent. They've questioned the wisdom. People have, the sideliners have all, always questioned the wisdom of the risk takers. But we need these people. Because these are the, are the ones that spread the gospel. 
And yes, they will be imperfect. Yes, sometimes they may do things that are imprudent. But God uses them. But it's better to to go out making mistakes than to just stay. Stay in the pew and do nothing. It's better to have an imperfect saint. Zealous for the Lord. Zealous for Christ. Than just someone who just does nothing for the kingdom of God. So this is what we see from this passage here. It's its beginnings. Next, we see its growth from verse 22. Starting here, then the news of, the, of, the, of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, how did the news travel so fast? They didn't have email. They didn't have even phones back then. It was likely that the news traveled through the trade route from Jerusalem to Antioch. The Roman Empire did have these trade routes and they did have the the technology of roads. um, Pretty impressive system of roads back then. But somehow, that's not what's important. Somehow they they find out and then they send Barnabas. Who was Barnabas? Well, we are introduced to Barnabas in Acts 4.36. His name was Joseph or Joseph. He's named by the apostles son of encouragement, which tells us a lot about his character. He has the gift of encouragement, the gift of mercy. You say, where's the gift of encouragement? Well, it's a gift of exhortation, <laughs> the gift of encouragement. He was well known among the apostles. And in Acts 9.27, he believed Saul's testimony after Saul was saved when no one else did. And he himself took Paul and took him to the apostles. They were reluctant to to receive him. So we see that he is a bridge builder. And we're told that he's a Levite from Cyprus. So this was a good call on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. They didn't send someone who could not relate to the Gentile believers. They sent a Cyprian, Greek-speaking Jew. And... He was like some of the Jewish believers that went to Antioch. He was also from Cyprus. And perhaps some Gentile believe, uh, some Gentiles from Cyprus were there in Antioch as well. Gentile believers. And this was also a good call because they sent the most mature, loving, gracious disciple they knew. The one who could teach them, who could shepherd them, who, who could consolidate the growth of this growing congregation. And they most certainly made the right choice. Verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So he was a good man. Few people are described like this in the Bible. He was good. He was of impeccable and irreproachable character. He was full of the Spirit. He lived a life of continual surrender and dependence on the Lord, full of the Word of God and full of the influences of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. He would believe God. He would believe the Word of God. He wouldn't evaluate people according to the flesh. He wouldn't regard anyone after the flesh. He would evaluate them based on the Word of God. He would look at these believers 
And not just see all their faults and failures, but what God had promised about them. That God was sanctifying them. That one, they, they, that they would go to glory. That Christ was at work in them. He would rejoice over these believers. This was not a man with a critical spirit. Simply writing off people because of their faults, because of their failures. And surely this infant church had many faults, had many failures. But he doesn't focus on these. He, he focuses on the grace of God. He sees the grace of God. And he, notice, he, he doesn't get jealous. Oh, why wasn't I involved in this? Oh man, I wish I, I was here before. You know, I want some of the glory for myself. No, he sees the grace of God and he's glad. He rejoices. And he doesn't try to rigidly conform this church to the standards of the church in Jerusalem. You know, when I read this account of the church in Antioch, I kind of, I'm kind of reminded of, you know, the Jesus revolution, the, the hippie, uh, revival that happened, you know, in the sixties. You have all these unconventional, you know, informal people getting saved and they're going to church. Not all of them were saved, you know, not, not, there, there were some apostates in their midst, but there were, People who were truly saved. I know people who were saved out of this move of God back then, who are walking with the Lord today. You know, but they were going to church, you know, with sandals or without without shoes. You know, and they got many faults and many failures. But God is working. I kind of see the Church of Antioch like that. And Barnabas does not focus on what he sees that needs to be, you know, or, or he he sees that is wrong. Of course, he is interested in fixing what needs to be fixed. But he doesn't focus on the bad. He's focusing on the grace of God in them. And he wants to stir up the grace of God in these people. And he's not trying to turn this church into a carbon copy of the church of Jerusalem. They likely worship very differently than the church in Jerusalem. They didn't have the, all, all this Jewish background and context. But he was just joyful over the work of God. Even if it was different than what, than what he was accustomed to. And he exhorts them to persevere steadfastly in the Lord. And the result of his tender-hearted, encouraging shepherding is that more people are saved. And the church grows. The Lord uses him mightily. In verse 24. We see many people were added to the Lord and as a result of the ministry of Barnabas. But then Barnabas does something unusual. He does something unexpected. He leaves the church in the height of his success in ministry, in the height of this move of God among the church. He leaves. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Barnabas leaves to go get Saul. Why would he do that? I mean, he was being used of God. Well, because Barnabas realized what many pastors don't. He saw what many pastors don't see in the height of their success. I'm lacking and I can't do everything. I don't have all the gifts. I don't have all the graces of the Spirit. We are a body. God has intended for us to work together. 
I'm deficient. I need help. I need help in order for this church to keep growing. And if, and if I don't get help right now, this church is not going to grow. This church, at least, it will be stagnant for a while. Many would consider it craziness to leave in the midst of a revival. And many ministers act like God needs them. But Barnabas understood that no man is indispensable. God doesn't need anyone. God doesn't need any minister, any pastor. Barnabas did not have any self-importance, did not regard himself as important or necessary. He was not hung up on, God is using me. God, uh, God brought me here for a reason and my ministry has a purpose. Me, 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 I, I, I. No, he was not consumed with, with self. He just wanted the Lord to be glorified and the church to be edified. Even if that meant that he needed to leave temporarily to get someone who could help. And he bought, he brought Saul. Saul had superior teaching gifts. And he knew, he knew this. He knew that the church could really benefit from Saul. And undoubtedly, Saul had shared with Barnabas his testimony of, of conversion. And Barnabas probably knew, you know, Saul has been called to go to the Gentiles. Who better to get than, than this brother? So he went to find him. He goes to Tarsus. Saul is there. Saul was one of those risk takers. He, he was a troublemaker in the church. We see that he gets saved and he immediately starts preaching. He, he ends up in Jerusalem. He, he gets persecuted and then he ends up in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he gets persecuted and they have to send him away to, to Tarsus because he's stirring up so much trouble. And then it says, you know, in the end of, of Acts 9, that the, the church, the churches in, in Jerusalem, Samaria, etc., they enjoyed peace. They enjoyed peace because the word of God was growing, because the gospel was expanding, but perhaps also they enjoyed peace because Paul wasn't there, <laughs> stirring up trouble. But Paul is in Tarsus, and he's waiting for his next assignment from the Lord. And Barnabas takes him. He takes him, brings him to Antioch in the same way that he took Saul and brought him before the apostles in Acts 9. And they spent a year pouring into the believers. They spent a year teaching the church of Antioch. And what are they teaching? Well, Paul mentions in Acts 20 that he preached the whole counsel of God. And that is what Paul was teaching, the whole counsel of God. He was teaching the scriptures. And the church, as a result, matures. And brethren, we need these type of men as well. We need men like Barnabas and we, we need men like Saul for the growth and edification of the church. And a biblical church looks like this. It has these type of men, theologically sharp and powerful preachers like Saul and also gracious bridge building, encouraging ex exhorters like Barnabas. And we need these types of men. Thirdly, with respect to the church of Antioch, we see its Christ-likeness in verse 26. It's Christ-likeness. Here it says that the, 
disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is the first ever usage of the term Christians in history. Antioch is a church of firsts. It's a church that sets precedence. The believers of Antioch were impacting their community. Unbelievers were hearing about Christ, were seeing how these disciples were living. And they, what did they see? They saw people who are always talking about Christ, who are living in accordance to the teachings of Christ, who are conducting themselves the way they were saying that Christ had conducted himself. They were praying to the Lord. They were having fellowship around Christ. Unbelievers saw a, a people completely obsessed with Christ. So they named them Christians. This was at first a demeaning term, a term of derision. It means belonging to the party of Christ. You know, like Herodians, they belong to the party of, of Herod. These were those that belonged to Christ. A derogatory term, but one that was embraced by the church. And they ended up wearing this term as, as a badge of honor. And that's not often how terms used to describe Christians uh, come about. The term Puritan was, was not something positive when, when it was first introduced. It was a derogatory term. The term Methodist, same thing. And so on and so forth. And yet the, the, the Christians end up using these terms and identifying themselves with these terms. They are not discouraged by the terms. They end up embracing the terms. And we learn from this, embrace, embrace persecution, embrace insults. <laughs> but another thing that we see here is that the Christians, the believers, are starting to have an identity of their own. They're, they're no longer viewed as merely a Jewish sect. They're viewed as separate from the Jews. These are Gentiles. Mainly Gentiles here. And they have their own identity now. They are Christians. They are consumed with Christ. That's what the world sees in them. And isn't this what the church should be like? Isn't this what unbelievers should see in us? Shouldn't Christ dominate our conversations? Shouldn't unbelievers see that we are obsessed, that we, that we are consumed with the word of Christ and the person of Christ and the work of Christ, constantly talking about him, constantly acting like him? If I were to ask your friends or your closest relatives or your neighbors, what is, what is he like or what is she like? What do they most talk about? What would they say? Would they say, oh yeah, that's the guy that's always talking about, you know, hunting and, you know, uh, sports and, you know, oh, that, that, that's, that's the lady that's always talking about, you know, health and wellness and fitness and, you know, <laughs> what dominates our conversation? Is it Christ? I'm not saying it's bad to talk about these things, so obviously. But what is it that dominates our conversation? What, are, what is it that we're consumed with? Is it Christ? Does his word dwell in us richly? And we see their Christ likeness in verse 27 onward. Here it says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. 
which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So there are these prophets that are sent from the church in Jerusalem, likely sent by the apostles. And who were these prophets? So what, what is a prophet? Well, prophets were the exhorters of the church. Whereas the apostles mainly were the ones um, getting directly getting doctrine from the Lord and teaching it to the church. The prophets were primarily concerned with the practical application of that doctrine. Uh, they were focused on practical direction, the practical direction of the church. And in those times they were receiving these revelations from the Lord to direct the church. You remember the canon hadn't been closed yet. They were still receiving the New Testament. And as we see here, the prophets would foretell at times, but they would also foretell. They would also powerfully exhort by the Spirit. So we have foretelling, foretelling. And one of them, Agabus, sees by the Spirit that there is a severe famine that's coming. And it's implied from the text that this famine would hit the region of Judea harder. And so what do the believers in Antioch do? They get together an offering. They get together this offering. Whoever can get anything, anything, whatever they can get, um, however they can get it, they, they get this offering together and they sent it through Barnabas and Saul. Each according to his ability. You see in verse 29. We don't know if the church of Antioch had a lot of means. We don't know if they had a lot of resources. But each distributes according to his ability. And we see in this their love. We see an incredible act of love. Because in these times... The Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews. The Jews saw the Gentiles as goyim dogs that would be damned. The Gentiles saw the Jews as stuck-up, arrogant, religious fanatics. Intolerant fanatics. They hated one another. There was this, this hostility, this animosity between both groups. Yet we see that through the gospel, there is unity. The gospel transcends ethnicity and culture and transcends these hostilities and in fact repairs these hostilities. Brings forth unity. So we see this incredible act of love in their part. They didn't see them as just Jews. They, they saw them as believers, fellow believers. We need to help them. We can learn a lot from that alone. We can learn of our need. Well, there's a lot. I'm not going to mention everything that we can learn from there. But the love of Christ. The love of Christ should flow in us, should flow through us to such an extent that we're willing to help our brethren in need. Even if, you know, they're not people that 
our culture would, would like or tend to like. I don't care if, you know, the U.S. government is against Russia. I'm going to be united with my Russian brethren. I don't care if some Americans don't like the, the legal and illegal immigrants that are coming across, you know. I'm going to seek to preach the gospel to them. And if there are some, you know, if, if some of those immigrants are brethren, I'm going to be united with them. So we have to move quickly here. Fourth observation regarding the Church of Antioch. It's leadership. And we see this in Acts 13, starting with verse 1. It's leadership. So at least one year has passed since the church started and Saul and Barnabas were pouring into the church the word of God at least one year, probably several. And we see a description here of the leadership, those who were shepherding the saints at Antioch. Verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And the first thing I want you to notice is the diversity. This was a diverse church, ethnically and socially. We already know about Saul, about Barnabas. I don't have to reiterate what we've already seen. They were Jewish believers. And Saul was as Jewish as one could get. A Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, etc., etc. I mean, he was really Jewish. But what have the others mentioned here? Well, there's this man called Simon. Simon called Niger. Niger means black. He was likely uh, dark-skinned, black, of African descent, probably from Africa. Some people identify him with the Simon, Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. We're not sure. There's really no way of knowing if that's the case. But then we have this man named Lucius from Cyrene. He might be the one mentioned in Romans 16.21. He was from Cyrene, North Africa. And then we have this man, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. It's the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. The same Herod before whom Jesus stood. And this phrase used here uh, had been brought up with can be translated foster brother. So he was like the foster brother of, of Herod. Raised in his household, treated like his brother, one, one of the king's children. So he was of the social elite. He had a life of privilege and authority. So brethren, you, you, you see what we're seeing here. People of diverse backgrounds. People of different races together. Again, this is unprecedented. This is a first in the history of the church. And th- you, you can guarantee that this leadership represented the church. There, the diversity of this leadership represented the diversity of the church in Antioch. And this shows us that God 
God was saving a people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every, every nation, from every ethnicity, from every social status. And that is often reflected in the church, is it not? Almost always <laughs> reflected in the church, unless you're living in somewhere isolated, some isolated place where, where there's only one people group. But even then, you have rich and poor together. And some of us would never be together if it weren't for Christ. Some of of us are so different and almost the only thing we have in common is Christ. But you see the glorious nature of the unity of the church here and of the power of God to save and to bring about this unity. And these men of the leadership are called prophets and teachers. Now, there's some debate over what this means uh, between scholars and, and commentators. Some regard this as separate ministries. There were prophets and there were teachers. But it doesn't say who was the prophet and who was the teacher of the leadership. And Luke is not always cut and dry and rigid with his terminology. It would seem that he is using these terms loosely here and broadly. It seems best to regard this a description of prophets and teachers as describing one ministry, uh, the ministry of the prophet teachers. And this designation prophet here is not necessarily referring to one who receives revelations from God, though it likely included that we will we see some of that in the text. But sometimes Luke and the New Testament uses this term in a more, more broad sense to emphasize the ministry of powerful, spirit-anointed preaching of the Word. So I think here the point is not to give a specific title of ministry, but, but to describe that there are leaders here in the church who would powerfully exhort and instruct from Scripture. Men who would preach and teach, and who had the capacity and the gifting to preach and to teach. So these were men of the Word of God. And as we see from the other verses, they were men of prayer. In Acts 6.4, the apostle said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's what these men were like. They were continually devoted to the ministry of the word, to prayer, to seeking the Lord, seeking his presence, seeking his power. They were not leaders given to fundraising or fixing clock pipes. They were not men focused on building a social media empire and gaining a large following of of people through their podcast or their YouTube channels. <laughs> they were men of prayer and the word. That was that was was predominant and primary in their ministries. And these are the men, the kind of men that we are to have as a church, men given to prayer, to the word. And we have to finish up here. Lastly, pertaining to the church of Antioch, we see its spiritual life. Spiritual life. We, we get a glimpse of what this church looked like in its regular gatherings. In verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this word ministered is the same word from where we get the word liturgy. From. It's an Old Testament word. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
uses this word in describing the, the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. This is a priestly term. And so this term is describing the new covenant priestly worship of the church. They were rendering to the Lord a priestly service, much like how Peter and Paul say something similar. First Peter and Romans 12 were offering up to God sacrifices, sacrifices of worship, individual sacrifices, but also a corporate, one whole sacrifice as a church. And this is what the church was doing. They were worshiping the Lord. The they in this verse, I believe, is a reference to the whole church, not just the leaders of the church. They're not called, by the way, they're not called elders here. We don't know if there was already by at this point a you know hardline distinction uh, of elder uh, designation of elder in the church. There may have been. There's some reasons to conclude that the, the term elder or, or the, this office of elder may have been already you know uh, uh, a recognized thing in the church in those times. But at any rate, they were shepherds in the church. Whether they were called that or not, they were shepherds of the church. But this whole church is ministering to the Lord. They were worshiping. They were gathered not for evangelism purposes. They were gathered to worship the Lord. They were gathered to minister unto the Lord. They were ministering unto Him. Not ministering unto the hungry. Not ministering unto the needy. Not ministering unto the lost. Ministering to the Lord. They were hungry for God and they desired to worship Him. They desired to serve Him together. And their hunger for the Lord is demonstrated by their fasting. Now, what is fasting? Basically, it is not a hunger strike. I won't eat until you give me what I want. That's not fasting. And fasting is not even for the purpose of the object of the person that we're praying for. It's not for that person. It's for us. Fasting is, don't even talk to me about food right now. I am more hungry for the Lord. I want to seek the Lord. I want Him above food. It's hunger for God. That's what it is. It's feasting upon the Lord and upon His Word. You put aside, you set aside food because you want to be focused on the Lord and dependent on God and, and to depend on His Word and believe His promises even more, believe on Him even more. That's how it helps you. It helps you to depend on the Lord. Ask yourself, when was the last time you fasted? In America, we have plenty of feasting. But do we have fasting? I mean, you go to some countries, like South Korea. I mean, the, the churches there practice fasting regularly. Some of, some of them come to America and they're like, man, what's up with these carnal Christians? They never fast. <laughs> they never seek the Lord in fasting. They're, they never have these intense, earnest pursuits of God. We are called to fast in prayer. Jesus calls us to do it. Jesus doesn't tell us if you want to fast. He says, when you fast, do this. And he gives us instructions. When was the last time you fasted? And I know as a church, 
We need to have more of those corporate fastings. Times where, where we're given to prayer, to seeking the Lord in His face. So they were ministering unto the Lord. They were ministering likely through singing, through praying, through the Lord's Supper, even through the preaching of the Word. They were worshiping the Lord. And I think they were also praying for the nations to be saved. You say, on what, ba- on what basis do you think that? Well, wherever, wherever in the book of Acts that we see the, the account of the salvation of Saul, we see that he's called to go to the nations. You think that he forgot about that? <laughs> you think that he was hiding that from the church? No, that was his burden. That, that's what he would be praying for. And this church, this multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse church of Gentiles would also likely be praying for the salvation of the nations. Lord, raise up men who will go. They were praying to the Lord of the harvest. You don't think they were obeying Jesus' commandment to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to raise up laborers for His harvest? They were praying for missions. And then Saul is sent out. Saul and Barnabas. The, the Spirit. We don't know in what way the Holy Spirit communicated with them. Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Was it a very strong prompting to one of these prophet teachers? We, we don't know. That's not what's important. What's important is that God showed them. Saul and Barnabas needed to be separated unto the work that he had already called them. Notice, the Spirit had already called Saul and Barnabas. And we know this from the account of the salvation of Saul. We also know from Galatians that Saul was separated from his mother's womb unto this work as an apostle. So the Spirit communicates with the church somehow and and tells them that they need to separate Saul and Barnabas for this work of missions. And you have to understand, brethren, that this is not a call out of the blue. You know, Saul and Barnabas were not just on the sideline simply, you know, cleaning bathrooms. They were actively engaged in ministry, in, in evangelistic ministry. They were actively engaged in the ministry of the Word. God doesn't just call someone out of the blue, you know, who doesn't have the desire. When God calls someone... what he does is he puts the desire in the person. And the person's actively engaged in ministry. The person has that. It starts with the desire. I'm burdened to go. I want to go. Lord, here I am. Send me. That's the attitude of one called to missions or to any proclamation ministry. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I want to do it. It doesn't come as a surprise to the individual and it doesn't come as a surprise to the church. It didn't come as a surprise to this church. Again, I think Saul was talking about his calling already. And he was desiring to go. So if you're not active for the Lord right now, and you may wonder, you know, I, did, did, has God called me to the mission field? May God call me in the future to the mission field? Well, if you're not active right now, what makes you think you will be active in the mission field? 
If you, if you're not involved in the preaching of the gospel, and if that's not your heart's desire or the ministry of the word, what makes you think that all of a sudden you will get zapped in, on the mission field? <laughs> or before that, before you go? No. When God calls someone, he puts the desire in them. And he gives them the giftings. And finally, verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So they receive confirmation that Saul and Barnabas are to go, are to be sent out to the, to the mission field. And yet, they don't immediately send them out. They wait. After the Holy Spirit tells them, send them out, they wait and they fast and they pray some more. That's incredible. They could have just said, well, God said it, so we have to do it. Let's just do it right away. No, they needed preparation. They, they needed to prepare their own hearts. The church needed to prepare themselves to not have Saul and Barnabas. And Saul and Barnabas needed to prepare their own hearts to be sent out. They continue fasting and praying. They're not quick to act. But finally, they lay hands on them. This is Old Testament terminology. It's symbolic of the church's support and sending them out. And they send them. And they, they, by the way, they send their best men. They send, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, sends the most mature, the most Christ-like men into the mission field. Often we don't want the, our best men to leave. <laughs> but that's who God wants to send. And we can't be selfish about that. We can't want them to just remain here. We need to be, to be like Barnabas. Whatever you want, Lord, I will rejoice over your work. Whether they're here or there, let them go. If it's your will for them to go, let them go. Let our best men go out and die in the mission field. If that's your will. And in verse 4, it says that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. I think that's interesting because in uh, verse 3, it says that, they, that the church sent them away. The church sends them away, verse 3, verse 4, the Holy Spirit sends them. That shows us that this church was in tune with the Holy Spirit, doing God's will. This is a spiritual church, a spiritually minded church of prayer, of nearness to God. Oh, brethren, there is much more that I could say about this, but I will have to finish here. May God make us a church like Antioch. May you, if you, if you haven't uh, noticed this text before, may you, from this point forward, remember the church of Antioch. May, may we hold it up as an example to us. And may we continue learning from this example. Let's pray.